we're going to turn our attention back to the book of Hebrews. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 8 this week and um, next week is just by way of a mini commercial. We'll be back here, but we won't be in Hebrews, but don't worry. We're going to stick to the priestly theme and I'll be bringing a message out of Matthew chapter 1 on Zacharias. So come back and and be with us next week. Uh, You'll remember that our study is about the book of Hebrews and our title has been what? Is it up there? There you go. Uh, The glory of Christ, our hope and comfort. Okay, and we talk a lot about hope and comfort during uh, the Christmas season. And uh, last week, you might remember, uh, we've been putting an emphasis on the fact that our hope and comfort is not in our own faith. Um, It's not in my faithfulness. It's in the faithfulness of who? person of Christ. My hope and comfort is not in my circumstances. It's not even in the results that I see. Um, I've got news for you. You may get an A on today's test, um, but there will be a test at some point in the future where you won't do so well. And if your hope and your comfort is derived from the results that you see from from here, uh, you will be inevitably disappointed. And you might remember that we kind of ended last week's message in the book of Jude. This is just by way of application. Uh, He says to those that he's writing to, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great what? Great what? Joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now And forever, it's almost like he was writing this with the author of Hebrews in tandem and saying, hey, your hope and your comfort is in the person of Christ. And you might recall that uh, this, as we ended last week's message, we talk about that, the fact that um, our hope, our comfort is manifested in the fact that we have assurance of our salvation. And it's not because of my steadfastness or your faithfulness or your circumstances or the results of your ministry, but based on what? On Christ's steadfastness. The fact that he is our great high priest. You know this, of course, that our circumstances change. We don't know what 2024, 25, 26 will hold. We, we might think we do, but the reality is, is that our circumstances might change in a way that we don't really appreciate. Now, just by way of review, because we say this often, context is king when we interpret the scriptures, correct? So the author of Hebrews is writing to what group of people? Hebrews, okay, those coming out of Judaism, right? Mostly believers, some who thought they were believers. And he's saying Christ is better, okay, than anything you can imagine, better than the law, better than Moses, better than David, better than than a priest. And he comes in this line of Melchizedek, who was a type of Christ. But we glory only in the person of Christ. I came across this from J.C. Ryle this week, and I thought it fits nicely. He says, do not glory in your own faith, your own feelings. 
Anybody's feelings change from time to time here? Um, none of you. None of you wrestle with the fact that your feelings ever change. I know, it's just me. Uh, do not glory in your own faith, in your own feelings, your own knowledge, or your own diligence. Glory in nothing but Christ. Now, he's writing to a group of Jewish believers who are coming out of Judaism about what year is this all happening? Do you remember that from the very beginning? Okay, most, most scholars believe that Hebrews was one of the earliest New Testament books written. Some put it as early as 45 AD. Most put it closer to 55, 60, 65 AD perhaps. What happens in AD 70? The temple is destroyed. We have things like Masada taking place, massacre. The author of Hebrews, through the Holy Spirit, is preparing those that he's writing to, and the Holy Spirit is preparing us for what might happen in the future. And it might be really hard, but we don't need not fear. We have hope, and we have comfort in the fact that Christ is the one who is our perfect, undefeatable, sinless, holy, steadfast, eternal high priest. And that's what we want to hear. And I hope that you've heard over the last several weeks, and we're just going to continue to hear that. I came across a story, okay, real quick uh, this week. And anybody read the Fox Book of Martyrs? <sighs> okay, another Christmas gift. Get it online because you probably can't find it here. Um, It's fantastic. And again, it sounds very morbid to read something about the stories of martyrs, okay? Uh, This isn't uh, Bunyan's tale of Christian's journey to the celestial city. These are actually real people who died for their faith. Um, One of my favorite stories uh, comes uh, in about the 16th century. In fact, it was in the year 1555, uh, and it had to do with uh, one guy whose name was Hugh Latimer and another guy by the name of Nicholas Ridley. Have you ever heard of Ridley and Latimer? They were bishops, okay? In fact, they served in the court of Edward VI. Now, you may or may not remember what was taking place there, but there was a change in leadership in England at the time. And so Edward VI, he was deposed... And Queen, anybody remember who it was? Queen Mary comes to power. And there was this power struggle with Lady, been a lot of movies written about it, Lady Grey, okay? Latimer and Ridley, they were Protestants. They were pastors. Queen Mary, she was a Catholic. And so they said, no, we don't want a Catholic queen. Well, she did come to power, and guess what? She didn't like these two guys that served Edward VI, and so they were imprisoned and put on trial. You might be interested to know is that the main thing that they were charged with was apostasy, false teaching. Specifically, the Roman Catholics believe that the Mass, in the Mass, when you celebrate communion, that the very body of Christ is physically present and Ridley said, no, no, actually it's not. It's, it's a remembrance. It's where we reflect on the once and for all 
sacrifice of our perfect high priest, but he is not there. And so if you ever walk into a Roman Catholic church and you wonder why Jesus is on the cross, okay, he's, he's still there because he is re-sacrificed. So Ridley says, no, that's, that's, that's not it. Latimer says, no, that's not it. And so they're put on trial, long and short, is that they are sentenced to die because they would not recant. Wow. People, people went to their death over doctrine, what they believed. Yeah, that's right. And so the story is told is that as they were led to the place and they ask they asked those that had charged them if they could be burned at the stake together. They said, hey, we want to we wanna be together. And so reluctantly, they said, sure, you can burn at the stake together, whatever. Dead's dead, right? So as they were led to be burned at the stake, Nicholas Ridley looked at his friend Hugh Latimer and said this, be of good heart, brother. The Lord will either hold back the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide in it. Can you imagine? You're about to be burned at the stake, and you look at your best friend, and you say, hey, hey, bro, we got this. It's okay. God has the capacity and the ability to save us, but even if he doesn't, he will give us the strength to abide in it. Reminding me of Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, remember they were charged (laughs) with not bowing down and worshiping the king. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. I think that Ridley was, he was thinking back to Daniel 3. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So where did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get their hope and comfort? Not in Nebuchadnezzar. And not even in the fact that they may be delivered. We know they were. But Ridley and Latimer were not. Yet the source of their hope, their comfort, their joy in life came from knowing and believing that the faithfulness of their one high priest would sustain them. Wow. That's, that's the application for us. Okay, so I'm starting with application. We'll get to the text, but I, I don't want you to m- miss that. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 and 34. Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be what? Anxious for itself. Now, I don't want to ask you to raise your hand, but if I were to to say how many of you have been a bit anxious recently, I suspect that many, many would say, that's me. Regardless of your season of life, there's all kinds of things that can haunt our hearts in our minds. And this is just a reminder that our hope, our comfort is in Christ, His glory, his perfect work. I love what Martin Luther said. He said, it is due to the perversity of men that they seek peace first and only when righteousness, and then righteousness, and consequently they find no what? No peace. 
Now, he was commenting on Matthew chapter 6. He said, it's perverse that you would seek peace first and then righteousness. I was thinking about that this week, and I was thinking, man, I'm, I'm, I'm perverse sometimes in my thinking. Because instead of thinking on truth first, namely that Christ is my righteousness, he is my glory, he is my hope, he is my comfort, I don't seek that first. What do I seek? I seek man's approval. I seek peace with other people. Anyone had conflict recently? I know you all love conflict. You get up in the morning, you say, man, I can't wait to be in conflict with someone. That's, that's not normal for most of us. And sometimes we even seek peace apart from righteousness and apart from truth. That's not the message of Hebrews chapter 8, okay? All to get here, okay? So in case you've had a long week and you need to rest and kind of list to one side, okay? Just take that with you. The glory of Christ, our hope and comfort. Hebrews chapter 8, okay? We're going to take the whole chapter. Don't worry. We'll be out on time. Verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. I like this. I need to be reminded what the point is. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Verse 5, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. God not only gives him the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, but he gives him specific instruction about how the tabernacle was to be constructed. Verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as such more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, now here's going to be the rest of the chapters, a quote from Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest. 
For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the title that I've given the message, Better Priest, Better Mediator, and Better Covenant. Okay, two points. Okay, I told you to be short, long chapter, short message. Okay, number one, verses one through five, Jesus is a better priest. Jesus is a better priest. Now, you just look at verses one through five. The author is saying, you want hope? You want hope that won't ever be pulled back from under your feet? Then don't look at your circumstances. Look at Jesus. He is the better priest. He's the true priest who resides in the true sanctuary. That's what the author is saying. Not made with hands of men, my hands, your hands, Moses' hands, but made where? In heaven. That was God's design. In other words, the author is telling his readers, his listeners, that he's going to argue that Jesus is better because of who he is, what he's done, and what he's doing now. Therefore, we get our hope. We get our comfort not in what's going on around us or anywhere else in the world, but by looking at Jesus. So listen to what he says in the very first verse. He draws a conclusion from everything he taught starting in chapter 6, verse 20. You remember had that warning? Okay, the man in the iron cage got that warning to them. And then in verse 6, verse 20, he says throughout chapter 7, now the point is this. By the way, okay, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of God. In other words, all those things that the author was telling us, okay, those that he was writing to, he said, Jesus is like Melchizedek and is designed to teach us one point, namely that Jesus is not only better than the Old Testament priesthood, he's better than anyone who could come from Levi, anyone that could come from Aaron. He is the only true priest. In fact, he goes on to say that they were simply copies of him. Now, you got to get that, okay? He says, look at verse 5. Okay, you can look up here or look down at your own copy. It says, they serve as a copy and a shadow of the what? Of the heavenly things. So it's typical for us to think of the Old Testament as prophecy, the New Testament as fulfillment. And generally speaking, that's always true. There's this dynamic where you have a type, a picture in the Old Testament. And then it's fulfilled, okay? It's carried out in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews is saying that the Old Testament priesthood was, in fact, a copy of Jesus. Now, notice that. He's not saying that Jesus is copying the Old Testament. He's saying that the Old Testament was a copy of Jesus. Now, you remember, when we talked about Melchizedek, we talked about that Jesus was the antitype. He was the fulfillment that already existed. 
So Melchizedek became a reflection, a representation in Genesis 14, Psalm 110, of who Jesus was, not what he would become. Jesus is the high priest. He had to come to earth, yes. I like to think of it this way. During Christmas, anybody miss loved ones? You guys miss your family? Man. Anybody find that to be hard and discouraging? I, this is off track a bit, but man, it's just hard. Sometimes when you're away from family and friends and you've got a new little baby and you wish you were sharing all that with them and you've got you know, things going on and you miss things, weddings and uh, birthdays and anniversaries, and sometimes you're just like, ah, so the, the next best thing we can do is what? Praise God for Technology. We get on to Skype or Zoom or, you know, whatever your, your platform is, and uh, we talk to that person and we see them, right? That's a representation of them. But think about this. Would you really be satisfied if you had the choice of being face-to-face with that person? I mean, I love the fact that Drew's sitting back there, and at times we get to talk with him via video, but we'd much rather see him in person, okay? You'd say, well, yeah, of course. So the author is saying to those that he's writing to, hey, it's just a copy. It's just a representation that you see in the priesthood, in the sacrificial system. You've got the real thing now. You've got Jesus. You can access him. He's there for you. Now think about how that was reflected in the Old Testament. Zechariah 6.13 says, Yes, it is he who built the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. He will be both priest and king. So even in the Old Testament economy, there was a looking forward to the time when Jesus would become the better, the end all, the perfect high priest. Uh, Thomas Watson, uh, he's one of my favorite really old dead guys. He said this, in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God, And in making continual intercession for us, that was his role as high priest. What are the parts of Christ's priestly office? Christ's priestly office has two parts, his satisfaction and intercession. And you say, well, what is satisfaction? Well, that's that role that he has, and we'll talk about this in verses 6 through 13, where he becomes the mediator. We think of mediation, but mediators is the one who stands between two parties, and he brings them together. And so Watson's saying one of the primary roles of Jesus as our high priest is to be that one who brings God the Father and the saints, the church, us, and he is our perfect mediator. He's our perfect mediator intercessor. You remember that we talked about when Stephen was stoned and Christ is pictured as standing up, leaning out towards Stephen, saying, 
in a very vivid picture, I got you. I'm with you. Yeah, these are horrible circumstances. All of us will experience to one degree or another, perhaps not what Ridley did. Hopefully none of us are burned at the stake, but I don't, I don't know what the future has. But you may face that sobering reality someday when the doctor sitting across from you says, I'm sorry, you've got cancer. Or listening to a loved one who says, Mom, Dad, I'm a wreck. That's our reality as humans. And our hope and our comfort is not in that moment. It's knowing who Christ is on our behalf. And he becomes what Watson says is our satisfaction, knowing that he is our mediator. That's verses 1 through 5. Verses 6 through 13. He's not only our high priest. Jesus is our mediator of a better covenant. He's that one that stands between us. You can go to 2 Corinthians 5.21 if you want a really simple gospel message, okay? I'll let you do that. We don't have time to do that right now. But Jesus, at God's direction, he becomes what we can't be. He took on our sin and gave us his righteousness. That, that is the role of Christ as our mediator. mediator. So look at verse 6. It says that Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he meditates is better. Okay? There's better promises. It's perfect. In other words, Jesus is better not only because he's a better priest, but because he is a priest of a better covenant, a promise. And remember, they got those Old Testament covenants starting with the covenant that God made with Adam, with Moses, with Noah, with Abraham, with David, all throughout the Old Testament, there was one final covenant that God makes with his people. It is through Christ. This is the new covenant that we celebrate monthly here at communion. Okay, Jesus says, this covenant I am giving to you, it's not just a promise, that's part of it, but all those promises that were based on the fact that he is our mediator. He is our satisfaction and it's not just better, okay? That, that's not a really the best way to describe it. It is the only covenant that matters. It's the only promise. When two people stand together, okay, in marriage, and they promise, they covenant to love one another till death do them part, we understand that that is solemn. But in Ephesians chapter 5, we see that as a picture of Christ and the church, because we know that humans are frail. And a husband and wife, when they're standing, looking at each other, they're saying, to the best of my ability, I am, I'm making a covenant to you. But that covenant is frail. It's just a shadow of the covenant that God has made with us, with his people. So if you're in Christ, you can bank on that. You can rest in that. You can say that it's only by grace, it's only by faith that I can persevere. And I persevere not in my own strength, but I persevere because of what Christ has already accomplished. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Now, 
Five things, okay, really quick. Number one, that we look at this text, okay? Number one, it's a better covenant because the law is written on the hearts of God's people, okay? This is just all through it because it comes right out and tells us. Look at, look at verse 10, Hebrews chapter 8. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those d- days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God. How did the nation of Israel know the law? Moses went up to Mount Sinai. He got the law. God etched it out in a tablet, and then he brought back those commandments, the law, to the people and said, here they are. Was it written on their hearts? No. So how is it that the law is written into the hearts of his people today in this new covenant? John 14, 17. Jesus predicted the spirit of truth would come and he would put on their hearts the love of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Read the whole chapter. Note, verse 3 says, We don't walk with ink that's been written on paper, but through the Spirit of God that writes His law on our hearts. The hallmark of the Mosaic Covenant that they received from Moses was really seen by all Jews as the high point of God's promise to them. But in the new covenant, God writes his law by his spirit on our hearts. In other words, the new covenant is better. It's better because it not only morally transforms us, but it gives us a new what? A new heart. Now listen, this is super important. It's not new, okay? It's not unique, I've said it before but it bears repeating. If Christianity is just changing your morality, that does not constitute salvation. Whether it's in your life or in those that you minister to outside in the community or even in your own home. Parents, you know you can get your kids to do anything that you want them to do with the right carrot and the right stick. That's moral conformity. That's not representing a new heart. We all know that. If you're a missionary, let me just give you a word of exhortation. Don't do things with a carrot and stick that get people to do the things that you want them to do. Bad idea. Because you're not going to really know the condition of their heart. Because they may do the right things to get something. They may... They may do the correct moral things because they want to please you, but it does not represent a changed heart. A changed heart is at the core of the new covenant. It's a better covenant because the law is written on the hearts of God's people. Secondly, it's a better covenant because God has taken us to be his possession. Verse 10 says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Okay, so that's a big Old Testament theme. It's a theme that announces the purposes of God. And what is the purpose of God for each of us? It's for us to be his possession. It's for us to receive the inheritance that he's promised. First Peter 2, chapter 9. Okay, it's not up here, but you go back and, and read it. 
that we have been promised that while Christ is our high priest, we've been promised the reality of a priesthood. His body is a priesthood. I'm not your priest. Jesus is the only priest that you have in your life. That's our possession. Christ is our possession. Thirdly, it's a better covenant because we have the opportunity to know the Lord because knowing the Lord is realized. I love what J.I. Packer says in his title, Knowing God, okay? Okay, the whole theme of the book is the reality of our privilege of actually knowing God for who he is. Verse 11 says, They shall teach and each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. The highest form of intimacy for, for any individual who has ever lived in any culture is to know someone. Through Christ as our high priest and through the new covenant, we can know God. It's a better covenant because we have forgiveness of sins. He goes on in verse 12. He says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. This is actual forgiveness, not through a sacrifice in the Old Testament system, but through the once and for all perfect sacrifice of Christ. Now, we've talked about forgiveness here and the fact that sometimes we beat ourselves up for things that we've done in the past or perhaps we wrestle with forgiving other people. If we understand that the new covenant, we have genuine forgiveness of sin. And because of that, we can forgive others. Verse 12 says, or I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. It echoes of Psalm 51. David, even in the midst of the sacrificial system, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. That's, that's the same promise that we have in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. We can confess our sins because he is faithful and just to what? To forgive our sins. Which leads to the final point. It's better covenant because Jesus makes the old obsolete. This is verse 13. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to what? To vanish away. To disappear. The worship team is going to come and they're going to lead us in the last song, uh, Joy to the World. And I hope, okay... I hope that your, your joy, okay, is in the fact that we don't serve an old, obsolete covenant. Galatians chapter 2 verse 16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, but because works of the law, no one will be what? will be justified. So, as you're singing, ask yourself this question. Where does your joy come from? Where does your hope come from? Is it manipulated by your feelings? 
but they change from time to time, that might be an indication that your joy and your hope rest in something that is changeable. Take some time over this Advent season. I know you are a busy group, and maybe you're an exhausted group. Get yourself in some space where you can find respite, peace, (laughs) calmness, whatever that requires. And if you've got little ones running around at home, it may be that you need to kind of do that independently of one another. Um, But consider, do I have the kind of joy, the joy that transcends circumstances, transcends success, transcends hopes and dreams, joy that is rooted in the person of Christ.